Ultimately, she said that the market sometimes forgets that it's the artists in the end who are the reason that this multi-billion dollar industry exists in the first place and that any dealers who are getting too greedy would do well to remember that. Hi, I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Market is a notoriously woolly place where deals are done with hushed handshakes behind closed doors. This, of course, applies to auctions and art sales and art fairs, but it's also true of something even more fundamental to the art business artist representation. How exactly does a gallery nab a hot new artist? And how does an artist ultimately decide to join them and to stay on during moments of skyrocketing success or to leave at any given time? There are no rules to this game, but there are definitely some trends and some are almost too strange to believe. Joining me today to help untangle this secretive art of wooing artists onto rosters is European market editor Naomi Ray. Hi, Naomi. Thanks for joining us on the Art Angle today. Thanks for having me. Artists know that one measure of success in this business is to get gallery representation. But these business relationships are not always lifelong marriages, nor do they seem monogamous either. What is the nature of gallery representation, Naomi, and how is it changing? So that's a great question. For decades, the art industry had a certain way of doing things. For a struggling artist hoping to build their career, there was one clear objective. As you say, find a gallery to represent you. Achieving this goal would mean finding support for their studio practice, a clear business strategy for carefully pricing and managing the supply of the work to the market, and being connected to networks of collectors, critics, and institutions who could determine their place in art history. And in return, the artists would share their financial successes equally with the gallery by agreeing to a 50-50 commission split when their work is sold. But on the occasions when the market alchemy that is set into place by a gallery hits just the right note, demand begins to exceed supply on the primary market, auction prices skyrocket, and art industry mega-businesses who are hungry to create a monopoly on the red-hot market for ultra-contemporary art begin to circle. Now, these mega-galleries can afford to make artists irresistible offers that can, and often do, cause their loyalty to the galleries that raised them to falter. Many of their smaller colleagues see their power as an existential threat. And these mega-businesses are only continuing to grow. Today, the big four mega-galleries of Gagosian, David Zwerner, Pace, and Hauser & Wirth represent a combined 400 artists and occupy more than 330,000 square feet of exhibition space worldwide. Right. And it sounds like they've been hoovering up artists at like a more rapid pace than ever before. So when an artist leaves one gallery to join another, be it a mega gallery or not, very often what we observe is both sides say absolutely nothing about the nature of what happened. But of course, on the fair floor and elsewhere, rumors do swirl. And you've been able to uncover some of the ways that galleries manage to woo these notable artists onto their rosters. What can you share with us about those cloudy dealings? Well, they are cloudy indeed, as you say, and there are kind of various reasons that this information might not be in a gallery's best interest to be made public. I mean, if one of your artists finds out that, you know, one of your other artists has a better deal, then, you know, what's stopping them from trying to renegotiate? So the exact makeup of some of these kind of cloak and dagger dealings is kind of the stuff of ghost stories that younger dealers tell each other around the campfire. They speak in kind of hushed tones of businesses dangling the carrot of lucrative offers such as signing bonuses and unbalanced commission splits to lure artists into betraying them. As you might remember, the talk of the town at the 2019 Miami Basel was that the coveted millennial artist Avery Singer had just left Gavin Brown. And the rumours swirling at the fair then 
with it, the mega gallery Hauser and Worth had offered her a $1 million signing bonus to win her favor. Of course, the gallery categorically denied this at the time, but nonetheless, an urban legend was born and it has yet to be quashed, as I think multiple sources recently repeated this $1 million sum to me, although none were ever able to substantiate it. For their part, the mega galleries all deny that offering cash advances to artists to seduce them away from their galleries is something that's common practice, but they are less cagey about using their significant financial resources to their advantage in other ways. Well, I can imagine that they don't want to set a precedent of having to give a million dollars out to get an artist onto their roster. Do you have a couple other examples of what this can look like? Yeah, sure. So, for example, when Gagosian was courting the artist Titus Kafar last year, they knew that it would be key to show commitment to Kafar's New Haven-based arts incubator program, Next Haven, which he's really passionate about. And sure enough, after Kafar signed with the Mega Gallery, it announced that it would be fully endowing this paid apprenticeship program for high school students, throwing its weight behind a professional development program and sponsoring the expansion of the model to other cities, which altogether is not a very cheap endeavor. And this year, Pace Gallery has added six artists to its roster, including the world's most expensive living artist, Jeff Koons, who left his other galleries, David Zwerner and Gagosian, in a major trade of allegiances. I chatted with the Mega Gallery's vice president, Jesse Washburn Harris, about this, And she told me that one of the keys to securing Coons was that the gallery was able to promise to finance the production of the artist's newest body of work. Coons is notoriously a bit of a perfectionist and his fabrication process is known to be very expensive. More generally, when recruiting artists, she said that the gallery tends to tailor its approach to uh, each different artist and the aim is to be able to offer them something that another gallery can't provide. And as they all compete with each other for art market dominance, these mega galleries are kind of honing their unique brand offerings. To sort of sum it up, Gagosian has long been regarded as the world's top gallery and kind of relies on its elite kind of maximalist brand. David Zorner sets itself apart by its intellectual and curatorial strength. Hauser and Worth on the draw of flashy destination locations. And Pace has emphasized its technological wizardry. Wow. Okay. So it sounds like there's not any particular one way in which to woo an artist. But what I do detect across all of these stories is that it takes a lot of money. (laughs) And it sounds like mega galleries in this case would really have some serious upper hand when it comes to drawing an artist onto their roster. Is that totally true? And like, what can other dealers do to keep up those who might not be, you know, in six cities around the world? Yeah, ponying up a small fortune or seducing a star artist with a helicopter ride to the Hamptons, which was another rumor about Avery Singer, by the way, is all well and good for a mega gallery with uh, seemingly endless resources, as you say. But it doesn't mean that all the other galleries are shit out of luck when it comes to attracting artists to their stables. They might just have to get a little bit more creative with their spending and put a greater emphasis on forging meaningful relationships in order to attract artists to their stables. And that's not to say that there isn't an element of the courtship that involves splashing some cash around, though it might be in the decidedly smaller order of taking them to their favorite restaurant or maybe presenting them with a personalized gift. I had a funny conversation about this, actually, with the in-demand surrealist figurative painter, Jamie and Giuliano Villani, who told me that gifts are truly her love language, and she shared a couple of stories about some of the ways that her gallerists have courted her affections. So first she was saying that Jasmine Sue of JTT Gallery sent her a huge case of her favorite Starbucks Frappuccino drink whenever she was courting her affections in 2014. And other dealers also made her kind of some funny offerings. 
Gallerist Andrea Rosen apparently nodded to the artist's impish sense of humor by presenting her with a crystal dildo. I'm not sure what the going market rate on a crystal dildo is, but I'd wager that it's cheaper than a helicopter ride. Wow. (laughs) Others indulged her taste for luxury fashion. A Chanel handbag, courtesy of the Italian dealer Massimo Di Carlo, was another winning touch. So today, JTT Gallery represents Jamie and Giuliano in, in New York, and Massimo Di Carlo oversees her market in Europe. But she did stress all the same that these kind of gifts were really just a starting point for a conversation and that the reason that she's kind of stayed with her galleries despite the rise of her market is that she's been able to build a close friendship with them and she really thinks that they trust her artistic vision and give her the freedom to develop how she wants to. Right. I mean, diamonds do sweeten the deal, though, don't they? It sounds like. (laughs) But money and presence aside, of course, there's a lot more that goes into these relationships other than superficial things. What else can galleries of all stripes, whether they be big, small or medium range, what can they do to keep a healthy relationship going with their artists over the years? Well, I spoke to quite a number of artists and dealers, and it seems like there's no one size fits all approach to building a relationship with an artist. The Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, who has resisted the big four galleries in favor of still blue chip dealers, Listen, Continua, Max Hetzer and Mary Boone. He said that all of his gallery relationships were founded on the dealers really identifying with and understanding his work and that they've continued because he's bonded with them all as individuals over time. And one thing that he said was a good litmus test for whether a gallery is trustworthy is something that can only be really demonstrated over time. And he said that it's if they step up when an artist is in difficulty. And for the dissident Chinese artist whose political work has often gotten him into trouble with the government, there have been no shortage of hard times to kind of put this to the test. And he said that one of the most memorable things that his galleries did was really step up and demand his release whenever the Chinese government disappeared him for 81 days in 2011. For the mid-career painter, Cynthia Dagno, who recently joined the roster at Kasman Gallery, she said that there are a number of attributes that she could never tolerate in a gallery. So no toxic work culture, no sexist, and no racist. Also on her no-no list is any kind of disorganized business that fails to pay its artists promptly. And she put it quite nicely when she told me that choosing a gallery is like choosing a life partner. She said that she's looking for a love match rather than any marriage of convenience. And she's got no time for fair weather friends either, she said. While there's no shortage of galleries that might work with an artist just because their work sells or is popular with a particular set of collectors or curators, she wants whoever she works with to really love and understand her work. And also she wants to make sure that the gallery is open to allowing her practice to evolve wherever she wants it to go. It sounds like there's a lot of trust involved if we go with the marriage analogy. And it's also not just artists who break it off when they move on from a gallery. What are the pitfalls of going to a gallery because the deal sounds sweet on the surface without really considering the integrity of this relationship? I think it comes back to the point that Dagno made about making sure they're not just fair weather friends, especially when it comes to artists who are having a market moment. The danger of being kind of blinded by dollar signs and embracing too fast a market rise is the creation of a speculative bubble that eventually bursts, which is what happened to a lot of the zombie formalists who were market stars in the early 2010s. I think an artist needs to choose a gallery that has a more sustainable strategy for growing the market. So this would be a slower approach, which doesn't really allow this kind of speculative bubble to build in the first place. Or, you know, if something like that does end up happening, 
a gallery that, you know, they trust will be around to pick up the pieces afterwards and really kind of rebuild their market from scratch. And I suppose that if you have a close personal relationship with a dealer and you trust that they've taken all of these considerations regarding the long-term health of your career into account, then you can be more confident that you're not just some kind of replaceable cog in a massive industry machine that could be discarded just as soon as the next hot thing comes along. So when artists make a switch from one gallery to another, there's often talk about them having outgrown their original galleries as some sort of rationale. How can a gallery change this narrative and really grow alongside their artists and with their artists? Of course, yeah. A good relationship alone is not always enough to keep artists from jumping to another situation. And I was talking to the dealer Dominique Levy of Levi Gallery. And she stressed that galleries must also be flexible about their arrangements with artists and allow them to change over time. So she said that she never really wants any of her artists to feel like they've been bought or that they're handcuffed by their agreement with a gallery. And this means allowing artists the freedom to develop their practice in the directions that they want to. So if galleries want a future with their artists, she thinks they shouldn't bind them to restrictive covenants like exclusive worldwide representation. But you know, if they want to work with other galleries in other countries and other continents, they should be allowed to do that if they want to. And then she also said that this flexibility should extend to being open to artists seeking to readjust the financial aspect of their relationship as their careers grow as well. That's so interesting. Yeah, I have been hearing more and more dealers describe representation more as a partnership than representation. And, you know, by nature of partnership, it sounds like it can really like evolve and it's not this kind of static thing. So just to like recap, we've spoken about the relationship between an artist and a dealer as something that is typified by trust and collaboration. But of course, we can't ignore like the hard numbers as well. So the traditional gallery sales model works on commission, which is most often a 50-50 split between the artist and the gallery. But as your research shows, some galleries are courting top artists by offering a more unbalanced split. Um, What can you share about that? Yeah, I mean, you're right that traditionally the art industry has been kind of different to a lot of, you know, like entertainment and that kind of thing. It's, it's quite rare to actually see such an even split between the artist and the gallery. Usually it is um, in other industries, it doesn't really favor the creators. So the art industry has kind of generally been looked at as kind of generous in having this 50-50 split. And gallerists have kind of really stuck to that tradition, really reluctant to kind of let go of it. But You know, when other galleries come along and they're offering an artist a more favorable cut of the takings, that can sometimes be quite a persuasive offer. Again, I was talking to Dominique Levy about this, and she said that, you know, there's no reason that an artist shouldn't be able to readjust the financial contract as their careers grow. You know, while in the beginning of an artist's career, this even 50-50 split might be fair because this is a partnership that is untested and heading into uncharted territory. And Splitting things evenly makes it possible for galleries to finance the kind of support that a young artist you know, requires to build up the right attention in this stage of their career. But she said that when an artist has established a certain level of career, you know, why should that stay the same? You know, there should be an opportunity for the artist to kind of redefine that partnership based on kind of what the relationship means now. Levy said that she has a range of commission splits with different artists, and she says they range from the traditional 50-50 She says she's got a few 60-40 relationships, and she says she even has one 70-30 relationship. And she stressed that this negotiation about the commission split, it shouldn't be based on things like fear and territoriality. So not because you're kind of trying to claw an artist away from someone else or make sure that they can't possibly be tempted, that it should be fair and respond to the different needs required by the artist. You know, some artists need a lot of support. You know, they need a full studio team. They want the gallery to shoulder the production costs. They need, uh, you know, an in-house bookkeeper, manager. 
and all sorts of things like that. Some artists, you know, do all of that themselves and all they need from the gallery is kind of support in this artistic conversation. So she said, you know, there's absolutely no reason that the commission split should not reflect kind of what the gallery is giving to the artist. Above all, she kind of stressed that it's about having a mutually respectful partnership that both sides kind of feels fair and neither feels like the gallery is kind of squeezing the artist or that the artist is squeezing the gallery either. Although she was keen to stress that all of that aside, it's still important that galleries kind of behave generously towards their artists because that's a very important element in inspiring their loyalty. And, you know, she's not going to take a loss just to sort of compete with another gallery, but, you know, she needs to cover the cost of her business. She actually says she often does embrace a kind of break even if that is meaningful to her artists. Ultimately, she said that the market sometimes forgets that it's the artists in the end who are the reason that this multi-billion dollar industry exists in the first place and that any dealers who are getting too greedy would do well to remember that. Did she happen to reveal which artist is a 70-30 deal? I'd be quite curious. Or do you have a hunch? I did ask her, but she said that some things need to remain confidential, just out of respect. So I I can't say. (laughs) So what's the big takeaway from this? In these sort of unprecedented times, air quotes, how can galleries keep their artists loyal, especially in the face of an increasingly stratified art market that is laced with these enticing offers? Well, look, there's no denying that money is a really important element to this game, but truly supporting an artist is about more than just the dollars and cents. I know it's hard, but let's just think outside of the market for one second. You know, supporting an artist is also about helping them to develop their artistic practice, which isn't always a guarantee when there are financial interests involved. Just because a gallery might have abundant resources doesn't mean that they'll be open to using them for just anything. So... If you're an artist, I would say you need to think about the deal you're cutting now and what happens if you want to change the terms of that deal. What if you don't want to endlessly churn out pictures that are popular with the market? And what if you want to experiment with something that's less attractive to buyers? Are you still worth the investment to the gallery then? One way to recognize whether a gallery has an artist's best interests at heart is if it doesn't hamstring them and allows them the freedom to develop creatively, whether that means collaborating with other galleries that can offer things that they can't, That means letting go of that traditional idea of representation as exclusive ownership or allowing their practice to grow in the direction that they want it to, even if that means going against the market trends. It also means allowing them to renegotiate their financial relationship with the gallery in a way that they feel fairly reflects their contribution to the partnership. All this might mean that instead of the artist's market trajectory being a steep triangle, it's more of a steady, slow, sustained growth, which might not be as headline grabbing right now, but which might ultimately leave the artist in a better position to stand the test of time. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Naomi. Thanks for having me. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you tune into your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. And if you have some feedback or maybe a recommendation for a future episode, go ahead and email us at podcasts at artnet.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at artnet.com. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Tim Schneider, and Carolyn Goldstein. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.